Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the program that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan, and today we're talking about how we find out what actually works in supporting well-being in education. In other words, the research that tests different approaches with parents, teachers, and students, and finds out how effective they actually are. My guest today is Dr. Osa Fagerland, who's talking to us from Helsinki, where it has snowed this morning, much to her delight. Osa is a neuroscientist and psychologist who's been leading research with schools and their communities in Finland. She's led a research project in schools that worked with students to support strengths, compassion, and happiness. And they also worked with parents using strength-based approaches to build engagement, meaning, hope, and flow. And this was part of a bigger Flourishing Families study. Osa has also conducted research into interventions to support first-time parents and the impact of fetal alcohol syndrome on child development. Kia ora, Osa. We are delighted to have you with us. Welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Thank you so much. You've got an amazing array of work that you do in your professional work and your background. So tell us a bit about what you do. Well, I am a neuropsychologist by training, um, and I started out as a school psychologist many, many years ago. I've been working in different schools. I've been working as a neuropsychologist um, with children with uh, developmental delays and developmental problems. I've been working with um, children who were exposed to alcohol during pregnancy for many years. And I got, in my work, I got more and more frustrated with all the perfect, um, the validated, the good tools I had for mapping everything these children were not good at. All the deficiencies, we had excellent tools to map, but we had no tools to map their strengths or what they were good at, no tools to lift or elevate them. And that is actually why I, in my frustration over the years, um, then found my way to positive psychology, and um, which was an area that in psychology was considered maybe superficial, maybe something out in the margins, not considered to be real psychology, um, for sure. So I started out to something no one else was doing here, which was maybe my luck. And I, I was also lucky because I had uh, a boss who thought he'd give me a go. And we got to start out um, a series of intervention projects, which was just as you mentioned, for for parents, for children, for school staff. Um, and I work now for a health promotion foundation um, at a research department there. And Osa, so tell us a bit more about this research. So you've been working with teachers and students um, and parents. So let's take each one in turn and tell us a little bit about what you've been doing with them and how it's worked. Yeah, the idea was to try out methods on um, enhancing child well-being. Um, And we thought the parents would be the most important people if we want to enhance child well-being but also other important adults in the children's life, like school staff. 
And then the third approach was to approach the children and their peers themselves. So we started out um, um, looking at the literature and seeing that, that if you really want to, um, to get enduring, lasting change, you need to have an intervention that is long enough. There's no quick fix, no fast food. Um, you need to be extensive enough. And uh, we also wanted it to be broad enough, like our Smurgos board here in Scandinavia, uh-huh. and broad enough to suit different needs in different students and different teachers as well. Um, so with, with the students, we went in. We had one class of 45 minutes a week for a school year. And this was an RCT study, which means um, we had um, control classes and we had intervention classes. Um, and the control classes um, went about their school year as normal, and the intervention classes got this one 45-minute-a-week of well-being. And then we looked closely at their well-being before and after the school year, and also to follow up, and we saw that um, focusing systematically on well-being compared to classes um, who didn't, um, we saw that their well-being their PERMA measure um, went significantly up compared to the control classes. We could see their hopefulness went up. We could see their positive emotions um, went up. And correspondingly, we could see that their depression scores were lower, significantly lower. And we could also see when we looked at, at um, physiological measures of stress, like cortisol, we could see that the cortisol levels in the classes who had been focusing on well-being were on a healthier level than in the control classes. And also tell us what age were these students and what kind of topics and activities were you doing with them over the year? Well we had to start somewhere so we chose 11, 12 year olds. They are on their way into the teenage years but they're not quite there yet but they're good at reflecting and thinking about things. So 11, 12 year olds they were and um, we did, a, like I said, a broad range of activities and methods from positive psychology, um, like strengths work, um, like enhancing um, positive mood, positive emotions, positive relationships, um, mindset work, hope work, Snyder's work, but also a lot of um, methods from CBT um, in, on resilience and how to bounce back after something goes wrong. And was that done by kind of by raising a topic and teaching about it? Or were there, what kind of, you know, was it interactive? How did you make it age appropriate and interesting? We tried to make it as interactive as we could. What the children loved most was the drama, the acting out of different methods. And I think actually that's a great way of learning. that you act out a really destructive response and then everyone laughs in the class. And you have to, and everyone thinks about how could we do this in a better way? How could we do this actively and constructively? Nice. A lot of drama, a lot of exercise, a lot of discussions and pair work and group work. And a little bit of theory, though. They loved the research. The researchers coming in and teaching them research. I think they were very proud in a way that they got taught the real research. Not too much. How interesting. So how did, when the researchers came in and taught them the research, how did you do that? Stories. 
The stories of the taxi drivers in London whose brains were um, put into to big um, imaging computers and they looked at what, what parts of the brain grew. Stories like that. Fabulous. And you think at the heart of all our good research are some really compelling stories. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You have to tell them as stories then you'll remember them and be fascinated by them. This is so interesting also because as you're saying this, I'm thinking about um, some of the feedback um, that Diane Bella Broderick got in the research that the University of Melbourne did with Geelong Grammar around how they were teaching um, well-being and you know well-being and education at Geelong Grammar, and some of the initial feedback was um, make it more make it more interesting, make it more fun, and their experience of being taught kind of didactically about the research was that that wasn't so effective. But I love that you did teach the research, but you managed to do it through story and you also did activities and drama that kept them captivated and interested. Hmm. Yeah, that's really what to do. And, and I think, of course, we didn't come in as researchers and, and give, a, give a, a class and, and went out. We, we did it very much in collaboration with the teachers and the teachers gave the lessons and, and, and were educated on how to, to, to do them as well before. Mm-hmm. And and let's move on to thinking a little more about the teachers. First of all, in terms of the teachers that you collaborated with, um, how did you teach them and support them and how involved were they? Um, good question. Well, we, had, we were developing the teacher intervention, which actually was not a, only a teacher intervention. It was a school staff intervention. We interva- uh, invited everyone in the school, all important adults around the children. And um, when we were planning it, we had to to plan it um, with the schools to see what would fit into their curriculum. And we ended up with a model um, that was one afternoon a month um, during the whole school year. So we went in eight times. And the idea there that, again, that it would be long enough and that they would have time in between to practice. So we'd lift up one theme, like working with your values, um, prioritizing, working with your strengths. And then they got, um, we went along with the Geelong Grammar School motto, which I love, which is the the learn it, live it, teach it, embed it, but you really have to learn it yourself first. You do exercises yourself. You you work with your own strengths, and then you can work with the students' strengths. So working both with the teacher's well-being, school staff well-being, and then exercises with students. And how much time, when you say an afternoon, how much, how many hours each time did you get with the staff? Around three, up to five, around three, yes. That's good. Of course, after a school day, so it wasn't um, always ideal. They were tired after a whole school day. And maybe that was the part that I found most challenging in all our research, that the schools are busy. Schools are busy. It's so much they're supposed to teach and they're, in Finland, we have a national curriculum. Everyone is supposed to follow a national curriculum, and you're compared to other schools. And you, as a teacher, you really have to to stick to the pace and get everything done. And here comes someone who says that now you should be well, do well being as well as everything else. Is this just something new again? Um, so to find room um, for it, it, 
for the well-being work is not always so easy. Uh, you know, I think there will be lots of people listening who will be breathing a sigh of relief to hear it's not all perfect in Finland. No. <laughs> and, that, and that you have the same challenges that we have the world over, that education is busy, teachers are busy and tired, and then we come along saying we've got more for you to do. Yeah. Yeah, and we've been thinking a lot about this. Is it good to go in with a whole school approach for everyone? Where, where we have a group of really enthusiastic teachers, we have another group, more neutral, and then we have one or two who says, oh no, do I have to go to this? Or is it better that we start out with the motivated teachers, the ones who are eager to do this, and the others then follow along if they do? And, you know, we know, we know schools that have tried the different approaches. Um, mm. I know Knox Grammar in Sydney went with, let's go with the small bunches of the motivated and keen, whereas lots of other schools have said, you know, we know that there will be differences in how keen people are, but we're all going to have the same basic grounding. And then after that, we'll see who kind of takes it on and is more interested. And so you went with all of the willing. Um, well, no, you, you went with everybody that was willing to show up to the training? We did. We did. Mm. And it, did that include some of the people who were the well-being skeptics? Yes. Yes, it did. It did. Yeah. For good and for bad. Um, <laughs> but we, we let it, left it up to the headmasters of the schools. Would they, would they have it compulsory for all their staff or, or would it be voluntary? Mm. I think it would be better where it was voluntary. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. At least what, starting out face. Mm. Yeah. Um, what, what makes you say that? What kind of things did you see or experience? I think it's difficult to force someone into something they don't want to do. Especially, then, especially looking at their own well-being. Yes, yes. Yeah. Maybe they will be inspired later. Maybe not. Um, it's difficult to force. Mm -hmm. And it might backfire then if, if you force them too much. And again, so with these sessions with the staff, it was giving them... Um, a grounding in well-being topics and really focusing on how they apply it to their own lives first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then how did you make the transition from um, the teachers learning about applying it to their own lives to moving into the classroom? Um. We, we just gave them different exercises. We started with the exercises like with the example of strengths, um, working with your own strengths. Um, and then when they had worked with their own strengths, um, we gave them examples on how they could work in their classrooms. We had group work there. We had the time split for, for small group work where they could plan in teams what they wanted to do, uh, what they wanted to try out. And then they would have the team as a support um, in between the times we came in. And then they would, in the beginning of, of the next session, they would present to their small group, what they had, what had worked and what hadn't, and we were trying to coach them and, and help them to the practical work. Interesting, because um, I think in one way, the, the whole idea of how do we move from teaching teachers about well-being to moving it into the classroom is 
It's a funny question sometimes because in my experience, when teachers have tried out um, a strategy or a topic or really engaged with a theme, it's really hard to stop them taking it into the classroom. You know, if they like it, they're just immediately thinking about where could I use this? How would I use it? Mm. Yeah, a lot of teachers are super creative. They find their own ways really and they know their students, they know their class, and they know what's possible, and they can build on what they've been doing already. And I know this is something, this is something Tayyab Rashid mentioned in terms of his program, Strengths-Based Resilience. What, what they found worked most effectively was creating space in the teacher training where the teachers, there was time to discuss how might you teach this in your classroom. So exactly mm. as you did. To yeah, we... Yeah, yeah. we started off, every, every time we met, we started off with a session in a small group, then we had a, a session in a big group for everyone, and then we ended again with a small group where they could plan forward. And I, I think it's important that, again, that the process is long enough and that you have spaces in between where you have time to try out, and then you get the coaching again and again and again, and enough of it. So you said eight eight sessions over the year. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's really great. Mm -hmm. And what do you, what did you find worked best? Yeah. What were the results for the teachers really? Because I presume you were looking at their well-being as well. Mm -hmm. How did that? We were um, challenging ourselves a a little bit more with the control groups there that they were again, um, they were, this is a control trial and uh, uh, the control schools got all the information we were giving, um, to the intervention schools, but they got it in written form. So they had all the information, but would they read all the books or the material we gave them? Mm. That's so interesting. But they got the information, the material. So compared to those control schools who were already motivated because they had applied to get into this research project and who were disappointed they didn't become intervention schools um, and who got all the material, compared to them, um, what we saw was that um, um, positive emotions uh, went up in school staff. Uh, we saw that they were getting um, significantly better at coping with everyday demands. Um, they were becoming better. We had included uh, mindfulness as well uh, for the school staff, and they um, they got more mindful of their own needs and of the needs of students. Nice. And this is, I like what you're saying here, is that we know that control groups can sometimes almost leapfrog ahead of intervention groups because they are a little bit peeved that they didn't make it into the intervention. So some of them will actually go and do as much work as they possibly can. So even with that possibility, your intervention teachers still improved more on, on well-being. And I love that they improved on coping with everyday demands that's one I think most teachers would be interested in. Mm-hmm. We actually saw the coping in the children as well. Um, we were measuring coping with, um, with experience sampling. So the children and the teachers, they had an app that beeped semi-randomly during the day and, and they had to answer questions on how they cope with everyday demands. And what kind of measure of coping did you use? Um, it was something that was developed at Geelong Grammar School. Oh, and one okay. of the 
Thanks. Bye, Diane Weller Broderick. Um, so you ask, um, since the app last beeped, which may have been two hours ago, um, what was the most significant that happened to you, and how did you handle that? And then you are given different alternatives, um, various coping methods. Um, did I scream? Did I run away? Did I <laughs> did I try and solve this constructively? Did I? I love that it has such a, a real spectrum because the one that pops into my head is, did I fall in a screaming heap, you know, down at one end of the spectrum. Oh, that's lovely. Okay, so you must have been very, um, very excited and pleased with these results for, um, for students and for staff. Yes, we were. And, uh, but it, it's been a lot of work. Intervention studies are a lot of work very intense but also very rewarding I must say um it's been very very interesting and you learn a lot it's the practical research that I love the most all the learning around what was the important bit what you would do differently oh I'm going to come on and ask you that in a minute but tell us moving on to think about the work with flourishing families and the work that you actually did with parents tell us more about that yeah, that was the third part of the study um where we well, we actually thought from the start, or I still think, parents are the most important in, in the lives of children. Um, so we started out from a program that is developed by Ryan Naming at the VIA Institute uh, called MBSP. Uh, Mindfulness-Based Strengths Program. Yes. Or something very like Mindfulness that. Mindfulness and Strengths. Yes. yes. But we added, we, we um, modified that to towards families. But there was two... Would you call them red threads? We, we use in Swedish that kind of expression. Well, anyway, um, strengths um, all through the program and mindfulness all through the programs. Being mindful to my own needs as a parent, being mindful, more and more mindful towards my children, um, learning about my own strengths, seeing the strength in my children in the family, um, using strengths in, area, in times of challenge. But then we also lifted in various other themes from positive psychology and CBT and psychology. We looked at how to solve conflicts, how to communicate, um, um, family values, so other, other things as well. And we, we had them meeting according to the MBSP protocol. We started out with an eight-week program. So this, is, this might sound like a lot for a parent to commit to, but on the other hand, it, it was the shortest of our interventions. And I'm still wondering, was it too short. Um, eight weeks, meeting up one evening a week, about around two hours. And then the parents got together in groups of um, between 10 and 15, uh, maybe a little bit more in, in some groups. Um, but I, and, I, and I think also it was um, important for the peer support there, parent support of each other. It was discussions and, um, and exercises and, and did, did they meet up between the sessions, those groups? Um, not between the sessions, no, no. But at the sessions? At the sessions, they, yes. They, they were in groups, okay. Mm. And then did people typically join one group and stay with that group throughout the eight Yes, sessions? yes, it was a closed group, yes. And I think that was important that the trust got built into the group um, and it was the same group. And how many groups did you have? We have run, um, actually we've run now, 
six groups as part of this research, but um, a few more where we have added, um, actually, uh, we've had a parent group, and then we've had the children in a separate group at the same time, children with, um, with problems with anxiety and depression. And how's that gone? Ah, yes. <laughs> moved into challenges. Yes, it's, it's, I think it's even more effective. That was our idea when you have children who have problems um, with depression and anxiety, that you give the children and their parents the same tools, and then they got homework to work with together. They would talk about strengths in the evenings together, and then they both had the same language. And the parents were worried parents. Um, uh, they also got a lot of support from each other, I think, in the group format. Hmm. And what kind of results did you see from that work? I think the one result that I was most happy with, um, most excited with, was that the flow, we saw flow scores increasing in parents. But flow scores um, in a very certain um, environment, and that was when the parents were with their children. We looked at flow at work, flow at different times of their day, um, again with this experience sampling method, um, with an app beeping along during the day for the parents for a few days. And we saw that especially flow uh, when the parents were with the children. was. So um, for people that aren't so familiar with flow, t- tell us a bit more about what that means to you to hear that flow has increased when they were with their children. Tell us about what's going on in those moments. I think it was a combination, but flow means um, that they really enjoyed being with their children. And I think the mindfulness there helped as well, because we could see mindfulness uh, scores increasing as well, because if you can stop and be present, um, you can also um, maybe go into the flow of, of, of the really enjoyment of being with your child. Of being mindful, of noticing their strengths, of noticing what's happening in the moment. Mm. That is such a precious gift to give parents, isn't it? Mm. And especially for parents that you knew were worrying about their children. Yes, they all were. They all were. We, we invited to the research, we invited parents who experienced challenges in their parenthood, which meant we had, we had a broad range of, of parents. We had parents with six children. We had parents with children who were seriously somatically ill. We had children with various neuropsychiatric diagnoses. A lot of yeah, parents with, with <laughs> raging teenagers. Very different type of challenges. Yeah. And they all got to listen to each other and support each other. Yes, and I think that's also very, very important. And how would you, you know, I I know you can't tease this apart. Well, maybe you can. But if you had to say, how important do you think the content of what you're sharing with them is um, versus the process of them becoming part of a closed, supportive group that they get to know each other in and listen to each other's parenting stories? Mm. Of course, I think both are very, very important. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's impossible to tease them out which part was at what percentage more important, but, but both, I think. Yeah. And, and also, if you think about 
Gosh, this is an absolutely massive undertaking, um, this research that you've been doing. Um, but pulling back from it, what have been the big learning and insights for you? Uh, well, a lot of positive that you really can enhance well-being if you focus on it systematically. Um, again, that this is not a quick fix. You have to be motivated. You have to um, really work on it, um, engage in it. But then you can really also, you can reach results. But you have to, fo- you have to prioritize it in your life, um, mm. not a quick fix. But then we've been thinking a lot about um, also for the work in schools. What about the children um, for whom the um, classroom version might not be enough? The children more needs. Um, what should we do for them? What can the special education do? What can the school counsellors, the school psychologists, of which I was one many years ago, what can we do for these children? Should we work on developing models that we we have many nice models now for working in the classroom, but models for enhancing that work on a one-to-one basis for the children who need that? Yeah, working more together with the clinical positive psychology. Actually, I think it was interesting that you brought up the the children um, exposed to alcohol because that's where my journey started. I really wanted to do something real for these children, um, and that's maybe where I I hope I will find myself soon um, that we could develop programs really for the childrens who are. Are not well off. Hmm. Can we use the positive psychology, our great methods and practical methods? How can we use them to really help the children who are worst off? Yeah, absolutely. Now, Osa, I have to say I have rarely been more surprised than when I opened an email from the Swedish woman in Finland who speaks fluent English, and it greeted me with "Kia Denise." And I thought, how does she know Tereo Māori? So tell us a little bit about how it is that a Swedish woman in Finland comes to speak Tereo Māori. I was, uh, I was a very bold uh, 17-year-old who wanted to do an exchange here somewhere in the world, and I wanted to go as far away as I could. And I went to New Zealand. I stayed for a year in the South Island, in Golden Bay, a small village called Takaka, and I took a course in Maori. I've, I love I've, it. I've, I've lost most of my Maori, but but I I feel proud. I, I still remember a few words. I'm delighted. Oh, oh, so we have to get you back here. If we get you back here next year, I'm taking you up to Takaka again. Oh, I'd love to go. I'd love to go. If you could only do one thing for the rest of your life to support well-being in other people, what would it be? What would you do? That's a difficult question. I would, I think I would um, really try and be mindful, be present, the respectful presence, listen to them, give up my time, be there for them, try and be empathetic, see their strengths. And then thinking about yourself, What's your go-to strategy for boosting your own well-being when you feel frustrated or down? What works for you? If I really feel frustrated and down, I think the mindfulness version works for that as well. That you have to stop first. You have to stop and think, what's going on here? What do I really need now? 
Do I need to go out in my garden and just sit? Uh, do I need to go out and walk in the snow? Do I need to go out in nature? Or do I need to give a friend a call? Or sit down with my kids? But then, then you need to stop first. Stop and turn inwards and feel. Such lovely advice. Oh, so it's been a complete delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us. I know people will be really interested and inspired to hear what you've been doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your program. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to learn more, our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, is available from nziwr.co.nz from early 2020. You can also listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz, on nziwr.co.nz, and you can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the latest research and practice in school well-being, join us at the Wellbeing in Education Conference in Christchurch from the 2nd to the 4th of April and Auckland from the 6th to the 7th of April 2020. For more information, go to nziwr.co.nz or conference.co.nz forward slash wenz20. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.